Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 1. We're near the end of the chapter. Jesus has just finished healing a demoniac at a Sabbath meeting in the synagogue, and he's gone back to his base of operations in Andrew and Simon Peter's house at Capernaum. We're going to look at Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, doing a bunch of other healings, and then and then we're going to talk about the first tour of Galilee as Jesus prepares his disciples to spread the word, spread the gospel. So let's start with Mark chapter 1, verse 29. And we will read from verse 29 to verse 30. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her once. Now this house was in Capernaum, which is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. This becomes Jesus' base of operations in Galilee. Peter lived in that house with Andrew, his brother, as we read here in Mark Verse 29, it says it's Simon and Andrew's house. James and John were then brought along with them into the house. Now, they all went there to the house, probably to eat the customary meal, which was eaten after the synagogue service, which we've just described in the previous audio and the previous few verses of Mark, when Jesus cast out the demoniac in the synagogue service. I don't know whether this is Friday night or sometime during Saturday. I'm going to assume it was Saturday sometime, and they ate the meal in the house Now, this house there in Capernaum was Simon and Andrew's. It was not their Simon and Andrew's native childhood home. home. They were both from Bethsaida, which is on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. We learned that from John 144. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Now, this fever that Simon's mother-in-law was experiencing, was pro- it probably put her in danger of her life because we read in Luke 4, verse 38, a parallel passage, after he left the synagogue, he, Jesus, entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. So we have that extra detail from Luke. It was a high fever. And of course, a high fever might have been so high that it put her in danger of her life. Now, these disciples going into the house, they went and told Jesus about Simon's mother-in-law fever. Why? Because they had just seen Jesus do a miracle casting out that demon in the synagogue. They probably figured, well, if he did that, he can heal Peter's mother-in-law. No trouble. It's an interesting point, by the way. It's Peter's mother-in-law, not his mother. That means Peter. That means it was Peter's wife's mother, which means the first pope was married. The Catholics love to talk about Peter being the first pope. The pope was married, and I'm telling you, it'd be a, given the current scandalous and pathetic situation of the Catholic Church today, it would have been a lot better if the rest of the popes had been married too to control their lassificious sex drive. The present pope we have now has done nothing but cover up the scandal, and I noticed by reading the press, I've been reading a lot of Catholic commentators on the situation, they're disgusted with it. They say he's done nothing but tried to cover it up, the current pope. Well, it seems to me that if a Catholic is faced with that situation, he'll do the intelligent thing and leave the Catholic Church. But anyway, anti-Catholic propaganda here for polemics. Notice that Peter's mother-in-law immediately got up and started to serve them, which means that the fever was completely gone, because usually you're kind of wiped out after you get get, get over a fever. She was completely healed, and she got up, and she started working. Jesus is said to have touched her when he healed her. This is in Matthew chapter 8, verse 15. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. It seems that when Jesus healed people, he liked to touch those who he healed. Sometimes he just healed with a word, like when he healed the centurion's servant 
right about this time, as a matter of fact, from afar, but sometimes he liked to touch the people he healed. Now that Simon's mother, Peter's mother-in-law has been healed, now we see Jesus healing a whole lot of other people in Galilee. When evening came, we continue in, in verse 32 in Mark chapter 1, when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all those who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. Why was it after the sun had set? Because the Jews back then had this idea, taught by the rabbis, that healing should not be done on the Sabbath. When the sun had set, of course, that's the end of the Sabbath day, according to Jewish reckoning of days. People wouldn't bring people to be healed on the Sabbath because of the rabbinic laws against healing on the Sabbath. We see this attitude in a passage that's not referring to the same event, but it illustrates the point. In Luke chapter 13, verse 14. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, There are six days when work should be done. Therefore come on these days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. In other words, you're sick and miserable and can get healed on the Sabbath. Well, don't do it. According to the idiotic rabbinic attitude toward healing on the Sabbath, and, and stupid ideas toward the Sabbath. Now, I will point out that Jesus has just exercised a demon on the Sabbath, and the synagogue officials didn't object. And I wonder why that is. I think it's because it happened all at once. The demon went crazy in the service. They didn't have time to rebuke Jesus, and things were out of hand, and they were glad to get all the help they could to get things under control. That's what I suspect. They didn't say anything. Well, anyway, this is Saturday night. Sun had set. Luke for. Chapter 4, verse 40 said, when the sun was setting, when the sun was setting, all those who had, had anyone with diseases, I'm not going to worry about the, was it dark when evening came or the sun was setting, that's close enough, unless you want to be extremely picky about trying to find contradictions in scriptures. Looking at the parallel passage in Luke chapter 4, verse 40 and 41, we see that all those who had any who were sick with various kinds of diseases were brought him all and he laid his hands on each of them and cured them. People like to debate, I think, in the healing controversy. Does Jesus heal everybody? Well, he healed everybody who was brought, I believe. Now, all can mean each and every, or it can mean many. You can't really prove it from the Greek, so I'm not going to try to prove anything here. But let's just say this. At the very least, Jesus healed a whole heap of people. And when he did so, he fulfilled what was spoken through prophet Isaiah, as Matthew 8, verse 17 tells us. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. So right there, that passage which evangelicals love to fulfill only in our spiritual healing, which of course it does include that, but they never include the physical healing, despite the fact that Jesus quoted that verse when he healed sick people. But I know we're not supposed to do that today because Jesus works back then, and but he doesn't work today. If you're cessationist, and all that's over with. You just have to rationally, rationate, or we've got to study the scriptures and figure it out from a distance. We've got to be deist. God's up there in the sky. He's taking care of everything, but he can't work down here today and heal people. Oh, no. Unless, of course, he does it through a doctor, indirectly, like a deist God. But anyway, why did Jesus not allow those demons to speak? Let's read Mark 1, 33 through 34. The whole town was assembled at the door. That's a lot of people. That's at the door, a door of their house in Capernaum. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. I just talked about how many did he heal. Uh, Luke says he laid hands on each of them and cured them. And Matthew says he drove out the spirits of the world and healed all who were sick. So I'm not going to be too tight on that, but he healed a lot of people, cured them. Now in verse, in verse 34, it says, 
or the end of verse 34, it says, He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Luke chapter 4, verse 41 says, Demons also came out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. Now, the question is, is why did Jesus not allow those demons to speak? Well, here's some possible reasons. First, the demons' proclamations might rouse people to prematurely proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. This would have gotten Jesus killed prematurely before he had a chance to train his disciples. The demons are shouting out, you're the son of God, you're the son of God. And people say, well, he's the son of God. The de even the demons know it. And that next thing you know, you've got a messianic movement and Jesus has got big time trouble with the Pharisees. He's got three and a half, about three more years to go before it's his time to be killed. Another possible reason why you would not allow the demons to speak is because when Jesus later claimed to be the Messiah, the Pharisee could, could say, yeah, you're the Messiah. That's just what demons said. So you're in league with the demons. You're casting out devils by Beelzebub. Jesus didn't want to rely on the testimony of demons. That's an interesting idea. But at any rate, he shut the demons down. There's another reason, too, why he might not have wanted them to speak is because there was an ancient belief that if you named the name of someone, you had power over them, like Noah named the animals. And... These people, these demons were trying to get power over Jesus. They were saying, you're the son of God. In other words, I've got your name. I've got your number. We say, I've got your number. They say, I've got your name. And, but he says, I will not allow you to speak because you don't have power over. Why did the whole town, as Mark says, come to see Jesus at his door in Capernaum? Well, they'd already seen the exorcism in the synagogue. And so they say, well, let's go see some more healings. We're sick. We're hurting. Let's, let's go. Remember that this is a time when there are no hospitals. There are no doctors. I mean, they might be, I don't know what you would call somebody who practiced the healing arts 2,000 years ago, but I guarantee you they weren't very advanced. So these people were hurting, and they were more than anxious to have Jesus heal them. Now we move to Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and he was praying there. Now, Robertson begins this section by calling it the first tour of Galilee with the four fishermen, the four fishermen being Simon and Andrew, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and James and John, sons of Zebedee. So let's get ready for this first missionary tour. First of all, it was very early in the morning when he got up while it was still dark. Remember now, he had been in the synagogue teaching the day before. He had been healing Saturday night, tons of people that were camped outside of his door. He went to bed and got up before dawn. And headed out, he went to a deserted place. Why? Because the people were clamoring all the way around and they were going to harass him to death and he needed to get away to pray. Application point is, don't let people that you're ministering to get in the way of your praying because you will end up hurting them and hurting yourself as well. So he takes out and he starts to pray in this deserted place. Now, here's some speculations as to what he was praying about. He could have been praying for the recently chosen disciples. He could have been praying about for the proper establishment and prosperity of his gospel. These are John Gill's. Remember, he's about to perform his first preaching and healing circuit, so this is a good time to be praying about that. Let me ask here a, a sort of a stupid question, but it's a question that one might ask. Why would the Son of God need to pray for anything since he was God? Adam Clark says the answer is to be a pattern for But I would also point out that Jesus was operating in many cases as a human being relying on God. That's why he prayed all the time. And it is a perfect example. Now, retiring to the desert to pray was a common occupation of Jesus. It was a pattern in the scriptures. I'm going to give you some other examples in Luke and another one in Mark. Luke 5, verse 16, yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Luke 6, often withdrew, not just once. 
Luke 6:12. During those days he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. Luke 9:18. While he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, "Who do the crowds say that I am?" While he was praying in private, Luke 9 verses 28 through 29. About eight days after these words, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. That's the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark 6:46. And he said goodbye to them. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. So there we see Jesus praying alone in the desert. Now, assuming Robertson's harmony is right, Robertson says we can go back to Matthew 4:25 and see who these crowds were that were keeping Jesus up at night and keeping him from praying. Matthew 4, verse 25 says this, Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, those are the ten cities to the east of the Sea of Galilee, and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, which is east of the Jordan. So I'm everybody is coming out to hear Jesus preach. Moving on to Mark 1, verses 36 through 37, we read this. Simon and his companions were searching for him. Jesus is headed out to the desert place to pray. Simon and his companions, which were probably his brother Andrew and James and John, the son of Zebedee, NIV study Bible adds Philip. But anyway, we got these four at least. Let's just say Simon and Andrew, James and John. They go out looking for him. They found him and said, everybody's looking for you. Now, I am going to try to reconcile that with Luke chapter 442 which says, When it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place. But the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. I'm going to assume that the disciples found Jesus before the crowds did. What probably happened is the crowds that morning, that Sunday morning, probably went to Peter's house first looking for Jesus. They discovered that Peter and his friends had gone to search for Jesus. So the crowds followed the four disciples into the wilderness looking for Jesus. This is according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. That makes sense to me. And so we see Jesus being harassed terribly by his own disciples, by the crowds, as he's trying to get along with God. So we move to Mark chapter 1, verses 38 and 39. And he, Jesus, said to them, that's Peter and, and uh, Andrew and James and John, he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. And thus we have what Robertson calls the first tour, the four fishermen, Simon and Andrew, James and John. Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. In other words, this is why I've come from heaven down to earth is to preach the gospel. So he went out into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So this is the first preaching tour in Galilee. And the NIV study Bible says apparently there seems to be three tours of Galilee. This agrees with Robertson. Again, this is questionable. People debate over this. But I'm going to assume there were three tours of Galilee. Mark simply says that Jesus said to the disciples, let's go so I can preach. Luke adds some more detail. Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God. Of course, good news is gospel. I must proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also because I was sent for this purpose. New kingdoms being established. This is the first use of the phrase kingdom of God in Luke's gospel. It occurs over 30 times in Luke, according to my NIV study Bible. Mark 1, verse 40 says this, Then a man with a serious skin disease came to him and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Notice that begged him. Serious skin disease, that was leprosy, and leprosy was bad business. Leprosy's 
lepers were universally despised in Jewish society, especially by rabbis. One rabbi taught that he wouldn't even buy an egg on the street if he saw a leper. And one rabbi was proud that he threw rocks at lepers. So this is why the man was begging him to make me clean and said, if you're willing, he probably felt beat down, worthless in that society. And so he was thinking, this great rabbi is probably not going to want to deal with me, a lousy, stinking leper. Application time. You feel like you're beaten down because you got mad at your mother-in-law. You stole a pencil from work. You can't live the Christian life. You wake up in a bad mood. You think bad thoughts about people. You're too competitive. You stepped on somebody climbing up the ladder of success, whatever it was. And so you say, I'm a miserable piece of excrement. God can't love me. He can't do anything with me. But now then you got yourself in trouble. And let's say you're sick with something like cancer or leprosy or something. Then you say, Lord, I'm not worth it. But if you're willing, make me clean. That's kind of how that leper, I'm sure, was feeling. And of course, Jesus was willing. He was moved with compassion and healed him. Now, leprosy was a very good physical symbol of sin because it was contagious and debilitating. Just like sin is, sin spreads. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And the wages of sin is death. So sin is really bad, and leprosy was bad, and it was a good object lesson for Jesus. Because if Jesus can heal lepers, he can heal sin. Now, a translation note here. The NIV translates this word as leper, as which most English translations do. My home and Christian study Bible says it was a serious skin disease, kind of leaving it ambiguous. The Greek word which was used for various diseases affecting the skin, says my NIV note, is not necessarily the same word for the leprosy that we know, Hansen's disease. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that whatever disease it was, it was, quote, loathsome, diffusive, and incurable. Note that the leper knelt down before Jesus, that it could be he was showing honor to Jesus as a man, it could, or it could have been worshiping Jesus as God. It's hard to say. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said, yeah, yes, this leper should worship Jesus as God. Quote, clear theological knowledge of the person of Christ was not then possessed even by those who were most with him and nearest to him, much less could full insight into all that we know of the only begotten of the Father be expected of this leper. But he who at that moment felt and owned that to heal an incurable disease needed but the fiat of the person who stood before him had surely that very faith in the germ which now cast its crown before him that loved us and would at any time die for his blessed name. So yeah, plus leprosy, I think leprosy healing a leper was one of those messianic miracles that the rabbis expected the Messiah to be able to do. It was a big miracle. It wasn't a small miracle. And here's a good point to point out that many cessationist types gripe that the people in the Gospels, they were coming for the healing. They weren't coming for the teaching and how terrible that was. Well, this man, yeah, he was coming for the healing. Did Jesus rebuke him for coming for the healing? No, he did not. Did the man love Jesus? Yes, he did. Did he honor Jesus? Yes, he did. He bowed before him. So you see, it is possible, cessationists, for people to come both for healing and for the person of Jesus. Next, we read in Mark chapter 1, verses 41 through 42, this. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. Now think about that, touching a leper. I mean, I'd be scared to do that now just for the for the aspect of the because of the reason that the disease is contagious. Jesus reached out and touched him. But not only the fact that the disease was contagious, but it was considered such a shame and a disgrace. It was Levitically unclean. Jesus didn't mind making himself Levitically unclean to touch a leper. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown here say that Jesus transcended the Old Testament law at this point by touching the leper. And, of course, I think that raises a theological problem because 
especially because of Reformed theologians who are always saying that Jesus never broke the law, that the Mosaic law is still in effect today. Well, it looks like Jesus broke the Mosaic law by touching a leper. Well, I know that Jesus did transcend the law when he says he declared all foods clean, when Moses didn't declare all foods clean. So the Reformed people got a very big problem with that verse. But going back to this, and if I might defend Jesus from the charge of breaking the Old Testament law here, and thus helping the Reformed people out, first of all, just by touching a leper and making yourself ritually clean is not really breaking the law. It means you subject yourself to the uncleanness that the law provides. Uh, supplies there that would be like a priest that became unclean he says okay I'm unclean but I'm not going to serve in the temple well he didn't break the law he he recognized the law, the law the authority of the law declare somebody unclean so you could say Jesus just did that he said I'm willing to be unclean to touch this leper or it could be he didn't touch a leper it could be the leper was cleansed before his hands even hit him and actually the the Old Testament law doesn't actually say that if you touch a leper you're unclean it does say in Leviticus 5.3, if he, a person, touches human uncleanness, any, any uncleanness by which he can become befiled, defiled without being aware of it, but later recognize it, recognizes it, he is guilty. So I would say leprosy was human uncleanness, so you touch it, you become defiled. So I think that doesn't directly say touching leprosy causes you to be defiled, but touching any unhuman clean, uncleanness does. So I think that, yes, Jesus, if he did touch that leper, he was ritually unclean. I don't think that immediately say says that he is un, that he has broken the law. I don't think you can say he put compassion above the law. I just think you can say he was compassionate. Jesus said, I am willing. Why was he willing? Because he had compassion. He told him, be made clean. Immediately the disease left him, and he was... But at any rate, I don't think it's too much of a problem. Jesus touched that leper, even though, I guess, the average rabbi who wouldn't even buy an egg in the street and who would throw a stone at the leper, Jesus showed himself to be quite different than the rabbis. The difference was he loved the leper. The rabbis didn't give a flying frip about the leper. No one had touched that leper in a long, long time. Now, why did Jesus want the cured leper to go to the priest in Jerusalem to go through the ritual that cleansed lepers were supposed to go through? Well, in my view, is to make sure that no one could accuse him of being associated with, with law violation, causing more trouble for himself than was necessary. This would be a good testimony to the priest. It would help prove to the authorities that he was the Messiah. Now, interestingly enough, the priests would probably have to dust off their law books about this cleansing of leprosy ritual because the healing of leprosy was so rare. It was considered a messianic sign. I said earlier in this audio that it, I thought it was a messianic sign. That's too soft. It was a messianic sign. Now we see in this passage in Mark and also the parallel passages in Luke 5.14 and in Matthew 8 verse 4, Jesus said, Don't tell anybody about this healing of yours, leper or former leper. Don't tell anybody. Why did Jesus say that? Well, here's some ideas. First of all, the people had false notions about the Messiah. They needed to be taught further before Jesus explicitly identified himself to the public. They had the idea that Jesus was a political Messiah and was going to start a revolution against Rome. This is according to all of this. This is according to the NIV Study Bible. Another idea the NIV Study Bible has is that Jesus had a strict schedule to keep. He couldn't be interrupted by premature reactions, people shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Messiah, when he was trying to train his disciples and spread the kingdom. He didn't want his teaching ministry to be hindered by crowds excited by miracles. And he didn't want to just be considered a miracle worker. He wanted to be considered the Messiah, the Son of God, 
the cornerstone of the kingdom of God, the founder of the church of Jesus Christ. He also didn't want to be killed prematurely. Jewish authorities would naturally see such a popular teacher as a threat. The preparation time for the disciples would be cut short. Jameson Fawcett Brown adds, since Jesus is so explicit about his teaching here, it would be normal for disciples to start talking up messiahship, and plus those miracles would make them start saying that too. Now here's some scriptures that show the so-called messianic secret that Jesus is telling everybody at the first of his ministry, be quiet, Matthew 9:30, and their eyes were opened, and Jesus warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out, Matthew 12:16. he warned them not to make him known, Mark 1:44 which is where we are now. I won't read that one again. Mark 5:43. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and that she should be given something to eat. Mark 7:36. Then he ordered them to tell no one, but the more he would order them, the more they would proclaim it. Luke 8:56. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. So this is a pattern that Jesus has done. Don't tell anybody about all these miracles. Now, here's a problem. Why would he tell everybody that? What was the point of telling everybody that since the miracle was done in front of large crowds? And those large crowds are going to tell people. Well, here's an option to solve that, according to John Gill. Jesus wasn't concerned about the crowds knowing. He was concerned about the priests in Jerusalem knowing, because those are the ones that were going to try to kill him. If they knew that it was Jesus that had killed, that had cured the, the leper, they may well have refused the ritual cleansing of the leper because they hated Jesus so much. So perhaps Jesus was, was trying to protect the leper and not his ministry. I don't think so. I think he was trying to maybe protect everybody. Another option is the healing wasn't done in front of the crowds. It was done up close, privately around the disciples, and the crowds didn't see it. Well, at any rate, Jesus says, don't tell anybody, but the man disobeyed. Mark 1:45, which is our next verse. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news, with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he was out in deserted places, and they would come to him from everywhere. Now, here are two things that happened that made Jesus withdraw from towns, according to the NIV Study Bible. First of all was his growing popularity, and second of all was the growing resistance of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. Here's some scriptures that show his growing popularity as his ministry progressed. Mark 1:28. News about him then spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Mark 3, verses 7 through 8. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. I mean, that's even beyond Israel. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Luke 7, verse 17, this report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. So you see he's getting more and more popular, and he's also getting more and more unpopular with the Pharisees and Jewish leaders. Here's some scriptures that show that. Mark chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, but some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming who could forgive sins but God alone. Mark 2, verse 16, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, on the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Mark chapter 3, verse 2, in order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal Heal him on the Sabbath, Mark 3, verse 6. And immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Mark 3:22. the scribes who had come from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul in him. He drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So it's very obviously that Jesus is making himself more and more unpopular, and he tries to keep his 
popularity quiet, but it didn't matter because people just disobeyed him and went out and told everybody anyway. But anyway, in the providence of God, it all worked out. So Jesus died at the proper time when his time was fulfilled and he became the savior of the human race and all who believe in him. Let's finish up Mark chapter 1 by going to the parallel passage in Luke chapter 5 and read verses 15 and 16. However, the report went around concerning him all the more. That's because the leper opened up his big mouth and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now let me make a point here, this thing about all the crowds chasing him. So many, many commentators make a false dichotomy here. They say that when so many people came just for the healing and not for the teaching, Jesus left them for the desert. Well, first of all, how do you know they came just for the healing? Maybe they came just for the teaching. Uh, Guzik is an example of this, dispensationalist commentator. These guys are wrong. This verse says the multitudes came for two reasons. They came to hear, reason number one, and to be healed. So how do you know that they weren't just coming out to hear the gospel? Maybe, they were, maybe the majority of them were perfectly well, and they just wanted to hear the teaching about the kingdom of God. How do you know they were all coming for healing? No, there was nothing wrong with coming for hearing. There was nothing wrong with coming for healing. It's just that Jesus had to get by himself to pray. Otherwise, he would have been exhausted and, and spiritually separated from his father from never having a chance to pray. This is not any slam on people wanting to come to Jesus for healing. And all these commentators who like to say this, would you, you would never criticize anybody for going to a good doctor, would you? Oh, you're just going for the, for the healing. You don't care about that doctor as a person. But they criticize suffering people who are trying to go to Jesus. All right, with that little screed, I will end Mark chapter 1, the discussion on Mark chapter 1. I hope you enjoyed this audio. We'll take up Mark chapter 2 in the next one. 